story is told of the following two friends who were out pheasant hunting. They approached a farm that had a huge cornfield in it, an ideal place to, to hunt pheasant. They decided to go to the farmer and ask for permission to hunt on his land. Uh, the friends, Jim and Mark, Mark told Jim, you stay out here at the gate. I'll go knock to the door and find out from the farmer if it's okay if we'll go ahead and hunt there. So after Mark explained their desires, the farmer replied, you know what, that's fine for you to hunt on our land, but I have one request. He said, if you look over that direction and you see that old gray mare over there, well, she ain't what she used to be. No, I just made that up. But, uh, but she's sick and dying, and she needs to be put down, and, you know, because she's been so good to us all these years that we can't bear to do it. Um, but if you'll shoot my horse, you can hunt on our farm. So Mark told the farmer it would be hard for him as well, but he'd be glad to do it uh, to help them out. And as he walked back to meet Jim at the gate, he decided to pull a mean trick on him. He goes over to him and says, man, that lousy, no-good farmer, he's got this huge farm, and he won't let us hunt on it. He goes, you know what? I can't believe that he said no. I'm going to teach him a lesson. You see that old mare over there? He took his rifle. He took aim. Pow, pow, two shots, pulled the trigger, shot the horse. He heard behind him two more shots going out from a rifle behind him. He turned and saw Jim lowering his rifle, and he said, Man, that was a great shot, Mark. You got the horse. I got two of his cows. Let's get out of here. (laughs) What's the point? Whether to play a mean-spirited trick on a friend or to get even with somebody who has done us wrong, we've all been tempted to do evil. And as we continue our study through the Gospel of Luke, we come to a passage that gives tremendous insight and godly counsel in an area that's common to all. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 4 and verses 1 through 13, where God tells us of the temptation of all temptations... And that is the temptation of Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, starting with verse 1, we pick up the account. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness, for forty days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. In this passage, we have Luke's record of the first activity of our Lord after his dedication and consecration. 
In our last message, we saw the first part of Jesus' preparation for public ministry, and that was his baptism. And at his baptism, Scripture was fulfilled as the Holy Spirit descended in the form, in a bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. This event clearly identified Jesus as Messiah. If you remember, John the Baptist wasn't sure that Jesus was the Messiah, is the Savior of the world. And God the Father said, the one on whom the Spirit of God in bodily form descends and the voice from heaven indicates is he. And so John the Baptist from that moment on knew that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the long-awaited one. And when he was with a group of people, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He recognized him as being the Savior that had been promised to man from the beginning of time. This event clearly identified him as Savior and signaled the beginning of his redemptive ministry. Now, in Luke chapter 4, we learn of the second part of Jesus' preparation for ministry, and that is his temptation, during which he was made aware of the perils and the errors um, that he had to resist. In order to fully appreciate this passage, we must never forget or underestimate the realness or completeness of the incarnation of Jesus. You know, the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus, though God, was indeed fully human with one huge exception, and he had no sin. Consider the writer of Hebrews writes these words, that Christ had to be made like his brothers in every way. The word every way or phrase that we get every way means that Jesus didn't merely resemble humankind in some qualities of humanity, but rather in every way or in all things or in all respects, he was made just like us. Christ's likeness was not simulated, but absolute. And you'll find that in Philippians chapter 2, if you care to read that on your own. As I said, in every way he was made like us with the exception that he had no sin. It's important that we recognize that so we really appreciate and fully comprehend the temptation of Jesus because it helps us as it comes from the reality of the incarnation, who Jesus is and what he can do for us. You know, in actuality, uh, when Jesus became human, he placed the exercise of divine knowledge and power under the direction of God the Father. We see that in Philippians chapter 2. And also so that we understand that his human mind progressively acquired a divine awareness as God the Father willed it. Jesus implicitly expressed this in, in, the, in the gospel of John when he said these words. In John five nineteen. he says, I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing ex- express this. When he said, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. And in chapter 8, verse 28, he said, I do nothing on my own. So he was completely submissive to the father's will and the father's direction in his life. At his temptation, Jesus fully knew that he was the son of God, but he withstood the onslaughts of Satan as a real man. And it's important that we understand and recognize that because he derived his power to resist by depending upon God for strength. The temptation was real and Jesus withstood them as a real man who was like us in every way. Significantly, the same author in Hebrews says this. He says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So in one event, his baptism, heaven opened up. And the second event, his temptation, I like to say hell yawned. 
in both events prepared Jesus to live as the victorious Son of God. You know, it's also important to note and point out, if we're to understand the great temptation of Jesus, that the Spirit led Jesus out to the wilderness or the desert to be tempted by Satan. You know, the 40 days that we'll see is an obvious parallel with Israel's 40 years and their 40-year sojourn during which, unlike Jesus, God's people repeatedly failed God. As they experienced temptations, they repeatedly failed. And in this particular case, Jesus did not. And the reason that it parallels that account is because Jesus, when he answers Satan with three successive references of Scripture, each one of them are from a brief section of Deuteronomy that makes reference to Israel's tests and failures. And these quotations, as we'll see, hold the key to understanding Jesus' three temptations and his victory over them. So the context is very important. So with that in mind, I want to take a look at four things we can learn from the temptation of Jesus. Starting with verse 1, we read these words once again. We're told that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. You know, the first thing that stands out as I read this is that if we're to have victory over temptation, we must rely upon the Spirit of God. We must rely upon the Holy Spirit. Notice the wilderness setting is a brutal, it's a desolate place. In fact, the name in Hebrew, we get the English phrase devastation. It's a, it's a stretch of terrible wilderness called the devastation. And the backdrop of the temptation as we look at this in the wilderness was a desolate, monotonous wasteland like that of a, you know, of a surreal painting of an anti-Eden. If you've ever driven out through our deserts going in, never, in, in a number of different directions, you can relate to what the scene would be like. You know, as we drive over to Arizona for spring training or for our daughter where she's at school, you know, we drive through there and I look around and go, wow, this is just an absolute, just a wasteland. It's just a devastated place. And yet at the same time, that's exactly the word that's used here, that the Spirit of God led Jesus out into this place of devastation where before him moved this resplendent figure of Satan radiating power and promise, this elegant evil as it were. And the first Adam fell to the gorgeous serpent in the glories of Eden. And now the second man, Adam, Jesus, faced Satan's alluring presence amid the barrenness of such desolation. The first Adam had everything that he could ever want surrounding him, and he failed miserably as he was tempted. The second Adam, Jesus, had nothing surrounding him, and he conquered the temptation, and he had victory. And we'll look and see how that will help us in our own life. You know, I believe that Adam fell because he overestimated his own strength, and he underestimated the power of the enemy. You know, Jesus, on the other hand, we're told, is full of the Holy Spirit. You know, that was God's original design. That was God's original plan and purpose for man. You know, when when God created Adam, Adam exemplified God's ideal. That was to be normal human life. Man in fellowship with God. Walking with God. He walked with God. Think about that. He had fellowship with God. That was the ideal. But when Adam sinned, the ideal was shattered. 
You know, I laugh when I, I hear in the world that we live in that somehow man has evolved from apes and we are who we are today. It's just such nonsense and foolishness that anybody looks at any objective evidence whatsoever would go, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And in fact, it's not a hard sell to explain sin nature. Everything in our culture is set up to protect us from one another. Every law that we have, every bureau of standards, every bureau of measurement, every regulation that we have is to help keep us from lying, cheating, and stealing and ripping each other off. And the reality of it is, is man isn't ascending into anything. If anything, we're descending and becoming more ape-like in our behavior. So, you know, there's good argument for that, you know. This was God's ideal. This is where we are now. And so when you look at this and recognize and understand that, you know, God's original purpose was that we would be in fellowship with God, what's so exciting to me is that, you know, men and women who are born again are admitted back into normal human life, what God originally designed. Where according to God's ideal and purpose, we can have fellowship with God. This is God's man, full of the Spirit of God. You know, God never intended man to live in his own strength and walk alone. He never intended man to face temptation in his own strength. The point is very simple. God's second man, or the last Adam, Jesus, faced temptation full of the Spirit and therefore was perfectly equipped through his fellowship with God and the power of the Spirit for everything that lay ahead. You know, Jesus was confident, not in his human life, separated from God, but in his humanity in fellowship with God because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. If you and I are to defeat the enemy, if you and I are not to fail temptation's test, then we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, patience, joy, gentleness, goodness, kindness, self-control. Self-control. I mean, think about it. You know, when we're tempted to do that which was wrong before God, the fruit of the Spirit, if we rely on His strength, is self-control. That we can have control over those impulses or enticements that would lead us to do wrong before God. To be filled with the Holy Spirit. The question I have as I went through this is, are you born again? If you are born again, the Spirit of God lives within you. We've been baptized into one body through His Spirit, and the Spirit of God is given to all who trust in Christ as a down payment of the future promises of God that where His Spirit is, He will call Him His Spirit back to Himself. It's a down payment. It's a promise that all that God has to say about the future will come to fruition. If you're born again, the Spirit of God lives within you. The question is, don't resist the Spirit of God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. But we're to walk in the Spirit. We're to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. We're to allow God's Spirit to control our life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. We're to allow God's Spirit to live and to flow through us. As we look at this, we recognize that the word of God is true. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in this world. And so if we're to have victory over temptation, we must rely on the spirit of God. Number two, a second thing to be learned from the temptation of Jesus is found in verses 2 through 12. And in this section, we learn to recognize the tactics of the enemy. Notice that Jesus, full of the Spirit in verse 1, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. 
He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, not only to fully prepare Jesus for ministry, but also to expose for you and I the tactics of the enemy, to show God's people how to gain victory over temptation. As Jesus was tempted by the devil, it brought our enemy out into the light so that the Word of God could shine upon him, so that you and I could know and understand the tactics or the schemes of the enemy. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are to be on the alert, to stay alert, for the, and to be aware of the schemes or the strategy or the tactics of our enemy. Jesus enduring this temptation brings the devil out into the spotlight for you and me to learn what these, these schemes and strategies, these tactics are so that we're better prepared to fight the fight and win. You know, when you look at this and see this, and it's a wonderful thing that we can gain victory even though the devil is in revolt against God, he's still within the grasp of God's compulsion or his divine purpose. And that's a wonderful comfort. And I know that each one of us could be comforted by that, knowing that regardless of how powerful an enemy that we have, and make no mistake about it, the Bible describes Satan as a very powerful and worthy adversary. We need to recognize and understand and not underestimate the schemes or the strategies or the tactics of our enemy. I mean, he's had a long time to perfect these. And we need to recognize what God's Word has to say so that we have victory. Number one... Notice this, for 40 days in verse 2, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during these days, speaking of Jesus, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And we'll notice in verse 2 a couple of things. For 40 days, the devil relentlessly tried to entice Jesus to do wrong before the Father. One of the tactics or schemes or strategies of the devil is that he approaches us in times of weakness. He approaches us in our times of weakness. You know, we're not told of all these temptations during this 40 days, but we do know from Hebrews that it was in all things that Jesus was tempted. He was, he was tempted in all things. I also find it noteworthy uh, that during this intense spiritual battle that took place, Jesus apparently did not emphasize a need for physical food. Notice it was at the end of those days that he became hungry. For 40 days he was being tempted, and he ate nothing during those days, which were the 40 days. And when those days had ended, which were the 40 days, he became hungry. And then we see a new series of attacks, and we'll focus on those in a moment. But for now, I want to emphasize that we need to be aware that the tactic that the devil uses is that during our times of weakness, he approaches. It's during those times of weakness. It was at the end of the 40 days that Satan pulled out three more temptations that are recorded for our instruction. Perhaps, uh, you know, saving his greatest weapons for one last assault. I don't know, it's not told, but I've got to believe that those three signify and, and symbolize all that we need to understand when it comes to temptation. For now, we learn that Satan tempts us in our times of weakness. I will challenge you to consider, is it not true that when you're tired or when you're ill or when you're hungry or going through financial difficulties or marital strife that we're tempted to do evil before God? How many of us, when we've been tired or ill or 
you know, having a stress in our life, we say and do things that we regret. We're short with people. We say things that we shouldn't say. We snap at one another. We say mean-spirited statements. We say things that, you know, man, why did I say that? And the reason that we said it is because we weren't aware of the tactic of the enemy that was during that time of, our, of lowering our guard when we have no resistance, that we immediately, instead of being controlled by the Spirit, relying on the Holy Spirit for our strength, we sneak back into the natural man. And those are the things that come out of our mouth. We're to be kind and tender-hearted. We're to say those things that encourage one another, build each other up. I have learned even in my own life there are times where I, I, don't, I, I shouldn't be near people. Because, it, well, and I'm still learning. So, as, as it becomes evident. But, um, but uh, you know, and, and you begin to recognize and understand that, you know, it's during those times that you just want to go sequester yourself somewhere so that you don't say or do something that's wrong before God. During times of financial difficulty, we'll understand that Satan will try to tempt us to do those things financially that we think will you know, bring some salvation to this mess that we're in, only to compromise God's truth along the way. During times of marital strife is the time where we become more vulnerable uh, to finding comfort in the arms of someone other than our spouse. So we need to recognize that one of the strategies or tactics of the devil is that he will approach us in times of weakness. The point is very simple. Be on the alert to such times. Be on the alert for he'll approach us in those times of weakness. From the temptation of Jesus, we also learn that the enemy, secondly, appeals to basic fleshly appetites. Notice this. And the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Well, what was the temptation? You're hungry? Meet your needs. You know, to take, you can t- I mean, and, and, it's, you know, and it's a wonderful thing, by the way, to recognize that in the Greek, when he says, um, he says in Jesus, where he says the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, it's no question about it. In the Greek, it's emphatic. It says, since you are the son of God, you know you're the son of God. I know you're the son of God. Since you're the son of God, you can turn rocks to bread. Why are you starving? You're God. And it's pretty evident that God, your Father, is neglecting your needs. It's pretty evident that God doesn't care about you. It's pretty evident because you're going without. Notice the parallels between Israel in the wilderness and Jesus. What did Israel do as soon as they left Egypt? They started complaining because God didn't meet their needs. That's the first thing they did. He he took them from bondage. He led them through the Red Sea. They saw the miracle. The ground was dry. The walls of the water were up along the sides. They marched on through. He met their needs miraculously over and over again. And when they got out into the desert, the first thing that they did was start complaining because God wasn't meeting their needs. God wasn't meeting their needs. See, in this temptation, Satan calls to question God's love and suggests that Jesus would have to care for himself because obviously his father had forgotten him. Now, in years past, when they hungered in the wilderness, they believed that God had forgotten them. And the devil was alive and active at the same time, calling into question God's love. 
this tactic is not new. What he's saying is God's holding out on you. He said it in the garden. He said it to Adam and Eve. God's holding out on you. Why can't you eat anything you want to eat? From that one tree, God's holding out on you. And how many times are we tempted today to wrongly believe that God is holding out on us? I mean, you know, I don't know, but there are times in life where we just need to stop and reflect on how blessed we are. I'll tell you, I've been doing a lot of that in the last week. You know, the last 25 years of my life since I've came, come to faith in Christ, I have lived the abundant life that Jesus promised. And I'll tell you what, God's not holding out on me. And when the devil whispers in my ear, man, I can't, God, can you believe that God would bring you this far and maybe this is the end of your journey? I've got to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and recognize that God's not holding out anything from me. He has given me everything in his Son. In his son's death upon the cross and the power of his resurrection, he has given me eternal life because I have believed in the promises of God. Not because of anything I've done on my own, not because of any effort of myself, not because of any works that I do, but because God has done everything. Are we really going to believe the lie of an enemy that says God is holding out on us? He has given us everything. We have everything in Christ. The fullness of God is realized in Jesus. You know, notice Jesus' answer, and he says, and he answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. You know, Jesus reflected on the hungry plight, and he recalled Exodus 16 and Deuteronomy 8, and he recalled how Israel had been hungry, you know, albeit not desperately hungry, and they grumbled against God, against the Lord for the stew pots of Egypt. They moaned and complained, and if you read the account when they were in Egypt, all they did was complain about what kind of food that they ate there. All we eat are leeks and onions. And then he gets it, they get out in the wilderness, and you know what they complained about? Well, at least in Egypt we had leeks and onions. It's like, what in the world is wrong with us? Are we never, ever appreciative of what God does for us? See, and that's what Jesus, he looked back and he said, you know what? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In essence, he's alluding to Deuteronomy saying that, you know what? I'm not going to complain I'm not going to take into my own in my hands my into this into my own hands this matter. My father has not willed to immediately provide bread, but I will continue to trust him and in his word. And in doing so, Jesus demonstrated that no need would ever drive him to draw back from his humble human existence as a real man who lives by trusting in God's word. Perhaps Satan at that point recoiled when Jesus slapped him with the word of God. As the Son of God and the Son of Man, Jesus resisted the temptation, noting that God's word was his meat and his drink. With that, we should be sufficient. With that, we should be satisfied. With that, we are to be nurtured. It's a wonderful thing when you consider how often we're anxious about tomorrow. Jesus said, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not worth much more than they? And what he was trying to do was separate the physical from the spiritual. 
And there's always a connection between the two. He appeals to basic fleshly appetites. He also attaches, notice, reward to compromise in verses 5 through 8. And it says, and he led him, Jesus, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Notice that Satan tempted Jesus by offering him an easier route than the cross, to become, as it were, a shortcut savior. What he was saying was to take an easy path to kingship, you know, and, and all, and all, In quotes, all Jesus would have to do would be to recognize Satan as one who could not be overcome, but one who had to be reckoned with. That was the temptation. He can't be overcome, so we've got to negotiate and reckon with him. All this was and is Satan's to offer. He wasn't lying when he told Jesus, all this has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone. To be sure, Satan had a limited, you know, derived uh, sovereignty. But it, it was his, in fact, because Jesus would three times call him the prince of this world. Paul would also call him the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So the devil's offer was legitimate. We need to recognize that man can indeed make a deal with the devil. And it's important that we understand that and recognize that's one of the tactics or the strategies of, of the enemy. Man can sell his soul to the devil. Man can make a deal with the devil. Man can say, you give me this and, you know, I'll do this for you. But let me just tell you something. There's one word that can summarize our enemy and is this. Liar. He is a liar and he is a murderer from the beginning. He has lied throughout human history. He will lie to you. He will lie to me. He will get us to buy into the lie. And he will promise things that he cannot deliver. He will deliver them for a short period of time. But there is a a price tag that comes with it that is not disclosed during the original transaction. You make a deal with the devil, you are foolish because he has nothing to offer you but grief and heartache and misery. He wants to destroy your life. For whatever temporary things you could want of this world, which is in his power to give you, it is foolishness to want that which is temporal and that which can be seen in exchange for that which we cannot see. We need to recognize and understand that's a tactic, a strategy of our enemy. To get us to compromise, all you need to do is just recognize my authority. There's nothing really wrong with that because I do have the authority, but he is a liar. And there is always fine print in the contract that you never see. Do not trust him. Do not believe him. The irony of Satan's offer is that God had already promised to give the Son all the kingdoms in the world. In Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, we see that God has promised to give his Son all the kingdoms of the world. But first the son had to suffer and die. The sufferings must come first and then the glory. The adversary offered Jesus these same kingdoms if he would once worship him and this would eliminate the necessity of his going to the cross. And if you know anything about scripture, you'll notice there were many times along the road to the cross that the devil stepped up and his tactics became very clear. And in fact, one time he used Peter as a stumbling block on the way to the cross. 
He said, I'm going into Jerusalem. I'll be arrested there. I'll be killed. I'll be crucified. I'll die, but I'll raise again. And three days later, I'll see you in Galilee. And Peter said, that's not going to happen to you. I won't let it happen to you. What did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. That's what the devil always tried to do. Keep Jesus from going to the cross. Because at the cross, he would be defeated once and for all eternity. At the cross, Jesus Christ crushed, as the Bible says, the head of the devil. And killed him and destroyed him. He has no power over you and I who have come to faith in Christ. He has no power. We are outside of his realm. He has no domain over us. He has no bondage over us. All the shackles have been freed and we're loose. And we're free to serve our Lord. We have the power of the spirit of God living in us. And we are to rely upon that power when we're tempted to do that which is wrong before God. It's exciting to live for Christ. The thought that resonates in my mind is that all you have to do is compromise in this one area. All you've got to do is compromise this one time. Let me tell you something. The Word of God says there is no place for any compromise in the life of God's people. To him that knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. There's no room for compromise. I get excited. I I, I get energized by guys like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who all they were asked to do was compromise. All they had to do was just bow down and worship this false idol that was made. And you know, oh God, you know my heart on the inside. Hey, I'm still yours on the outside. What's the big deal? You don't want to take me out like this because I'm such an effective servant of yours. And we rationalize and justify and figure out ways we can compromise because we don't want to stand on trusting God. We don't want to stand on his truth. We don't want to, we don't want to, you know, conquer down and be steadfast and immovable. We don't want to pay a price for walking with the Lord. We don't want to be persecuted. We don't want to sign up for this line. I, didn't, I wouldn't go to that line that says, hey, I want to give you cancer. And boy, I'm going to use it for my glory. Would you get in that line? I don't think so. I ain't getting in that line. I'm just not that mature yet in my walk with Christ. But through this, I'm learning. To become mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So what does he want us to do? He wants us to compromise. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said this, you know what? I know that our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, but even if he chooses not to, we're not going to bow down to your stupid idol. That was the living version. I threw that stupid part in. (laughs) But he goes, I'm sorry, we're not going to compromise in this, this little area because there is no little compromise in our walk with God. There's no such thing as little compromise. Daniel, the same thing. All they said to him was, hey, listen, you know what? Daniel, and I'm sure the devil whispered to him, Daniel, you know what? You know they know when you pray. They issued an edict. They're going to come and find you praying. If they find you praying, they're going to throw you in the lion's den. So why don't you change your time of prayer? Because if you change your time of prayer, they're not going to catch you. And you can still keep praying. And boy, you got the best of both worlds. But you know what the Bible says? That Daniel steadfastly continued to pray as he always did. And he wasn't going to allow man to keep him from his relationship with God. He got arrested. Got thrown in the lion's den. You know, when the king said, man, is your God able to deliver you? Hey, you know what? Our God is able to deliver me from the lion's den. He was able to deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. But all I know is this. We always have to have the attitude that says this. My God is able to deliver us from any of these things in our life. But you know what? Even if he chooses, as Job said, to slay me, I will still trust in him. Doesn't mean I understand it, but it just means I'll trust him. Because when, God, when, when things don't make sense, God always does. Cool. 
As we move forward, we see Jesus' answer. Once again, he quotes the word of God and he said to him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You know what the devil's problem is? He has always wanted to be worshipped as God. That's why he got thrown out of heaven. He wants to be God. He wants to be worshipped as God. He wants to be acknowledged as somehow an authority in our life. But for you and I as God's people, he has no dominion. He has no authority. He has no control over us. So don't allow him to have a foothold in your life by compromising in what you consider a small area. Because once he has a foothold, he gains a foothold, he then moves in the troops, he's got a place of operation, and from the littlest of compromises, your life and your walk with the Lord will disintegrate and degenerate into uselessness. The application is, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Jesus embraced the cross by refusing to become a shortcut savior. And as his followers, we must do the same. He said, if anyone would come after me, must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. We also notice that he attempts to use God's word for his purposes. And boy, don't we see a whole bunch of that going on today. And he led him to Jerusalem, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Well, he's, you know, he's catching on. Jesus quoted Scripture, the last two temptations. So Satan jumps in and says, well, let me quote some to you. The difference is he misquotes it. He misuses it. He manipulates it. He distorts it for his own purpose. He said, he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you. And, oh, on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. What he's saying is, you're the son of God. The angels of God will protect anything from happening to you. Jesus, in the, in, in, when he was being arrested, said, hey, you don't understand. My father would send myriads of angels, legions of angels, to stop this from happening if he didn't want it to happen. But it's God's will that I go to the cross. That's why I can't to seek and to save that which was lost, to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. It was like, hey, you know what? That's God's will that he went to the cross. But God could send angels. And so what Satan does, he takes scripture and he manipulates it and distorts it and says, well, the word of God says you can stand up on the temple, uh, you know, and, and you can just dive off the temple and God will send angels to somehow or another to save you from the consequence of diving off the temple. You know, he attempts to use God's word for his purpose. And again, there's nothing new here. All one has to do is look around our world today and see how often God's word is manipulated so that man can continue to sin before God and reject, reject God's command to repent. We saw that with the Episcopal Church this week. We see that on a regular basis, the article in the register this week in the newspaper explaining how some interpret the Bible in order to support their homosexual behavior. Using God's word to support sin is nothing new. It's a tactic of the enemy that Jesus flushes out into the open in his wilderness encounter. We need to recognize and interpret Scripture, interpret Scripture in the context. And I read the explanations of how people interpret Scripture, and it just breaks my heart because you want to shout out, you forgot to read the rest of the passage. And that's the same thing that the devil did here. You didn't quote all of it. You didn't quote it in context. You took it out and distorted. You and I can get the Bible to say anything we want it to say for our own purposes and our own reason. 
You know, we can. Whatever you want to say, you can find it and you can manipulate it to say it. You know, we all want to hear what we want to hear instead of hearing the truth. It's like when our doctor called and he told me, and I was like, so I told him, I said, you know what? We, we need to find a better doctor. <laughs> we need to find a doctor that's going to tell us good stuff. You know, give us good news. You know, not one who's going to tell us the truth. We want to find a doctor who will just tell us everything's okay. You know, and that's the way people want to find preachers that will be like doctors who just tell people what they want to hear and not tell them the truth. Well, the truth sets you free. The truth gives you a plan of action. The truth is what we need to know to deal with. And you know what? And, and, and there's plenty of churches out there. There's plenty of pastors out there. There's plenty of people that will tickle ears because they know people don't want to hear God's truth. They don't want to hear they have to repent. They don't want to hear that they are sinners. They don't want to hear that, you know what, outside of Christ they're going to hell and not all roads lead to heaven. They don't want to hear that is believe upon him and you shall be saved. They don't want to hear that, well, what's my works and my efforts and look at all my good stuff. That's what they want to hear because they're being deceived by the enemy. That's a tactic. It's a strategy to keep us from the truth. So as we look at this, Jesus, you know, he vanquishes the first two temptations by quoting scripture. Now Satan quotes it, he misquotes it, he manipulates it. And the bottom line of all of it is that we've got to be very careful that we don't go to the word of God so that we can tell God what we want to hear. But we go with the word of God so that God tells us what he wants us to know. That we go open and teachable. This is what the word of God says. Jesus' answer, in essence, was very clear. He says, don't attempt to force God to act. God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Don't go to God and force him to act. We go to God and say, God, we love you. We trust you. We don't understand, but we don't need to understand. But what we do understand about you is worthy to be praised. So we praise you. We look forward to what you're going to do. We trust you explicitly. You're able to do exceedingly abundantly being all we can ask or think. And yet at the same time, whatever you choose to do is okay with me because you're God and I'm not. We don't force God to act. We can make the Bible say anything. I, I, heard, a, I heard a couple that were debating about who's supposed to make coffee the husband or the wife. And I was just like, what in the world do we fight and argue about? But it was like they were going back and forth. You know, the wife should make the coffee. And, and she said, no, the husband should make the coffee. And, and it's like, well, you know, how do you know which is which? And she said, well, you know what? I've been studying the Bible. And in our Bible study, God spoke to me and said that you, the husband, should make the coffee. <laughs> he said, really? Where's that? And she goes, right here. She turned to it. She said, look at this. Hebrews. went that's good (laughs) last tactic he attacks at opportune times look at verse 13 and when the devil had finished every temptation he departed from him until an opportune time he came back again and again and again and again he's relentless he's a formidable foe he's a roaring lion seeking to devour those who can 
In closing, we'll look at these last two things. Number one, uh, number three on our, on our outline, how do we have victory in temptation? We respond with faith in God's word. Very simple. Every answer that Jesus gave, he gave from the word of God. Every time that the enemy lies and whispers in my ear recently, I'm able to just go back to the word of God. Like I said, I find great comfort when I hear a lie to be able to hold it up against the objective standard of God's word and say, that's not true. Because God's word says this. And we slap the devil with a passage of scripture. He respond, we respond with faith in God's word. It is written, period, end of discussion. That's what God says. God says it, I believe it, let's move on. Number four, lastly, we remember the resources of God are available to you and me who have been born again. We have at our disposal the same spiritual resources that Jesus used when he faced and defeated Satan. First and foremost is prayer, the power of prayer. God is motivated by the prayers of his people. We have the Father's love. He meets our greatest needs, and we should never doubt him. We should always trust him. We have the power of the Spirit of God living within us, for greater is he who is within us than he who is in the world. And we have the word of God. It is written. You know, and above all of these things, we have in heaven the interceding Savior who has defeated the enemy completely. Satan tempts us to bring out the worst in us, but God can use these difficult experiences to put the best into us. You know, temptation is Satan's weapon to defeat us, but it can become God's tool to build us. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that we will be complete mature, lacking in nothing, that you and I will become more like Jesus as we live in victory over Satan and his temptation. Father, thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for our Savior who defeated Satan on the cross as he crushed his head for all of eternity. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It is no longer that for any of us who have trusted in Christ. Father, I pray for those who are here that aren't sure of their relationship, that they would give their life today to you, that they would repent of sin, recognizing their own sinfulness, that they would trust in Jesus, his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection. They would receive him here and now as their savior and then proclaim that publicly to someone around them. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you for the victory we have in Jesus. Amen.